This is 105.9 The Region. There are so many ways of communicating these days, but nothing seems to beat the one-on-one. This is In Conversation with Ann Romer. Welcome to In Conversation. Thank you for being with us. This show is, in my view, upfront, up close, and inspiring. Connor McDavid is on fire. The 24-year-old Oilers captain scored his 500th career point earlier this month, making him the 21st player in NHL history to do so before turning 25, and he's now tied with Sidney Crosby as the fastest active NHL player to reach 500. So here's how the modest young man from Newmarket reacted. Um, yeah, I mean, it's... Uh... It's a little milestone, I guess, uh, you know, a little uh, little thing along the way here, which is, uh, you know, nice, um, you know, and to see, uh, you know, to feel some of the reaction from, you know, my teammates and, and friends and family and, and stuff like that. It's uh, it's always special. So, um, you know, I really appreciate the sport and, um, and just uh, and onward. Many expect that this milestone will be just a footnote in Connor McDavid's career, believing the best is yet to come. But how did he get here? Proud father Brian McDavid joins us now in conversation with Connor's incredible journey. Thank you, Brian, for being with us. Hi, Ann. Thanks for having me. So when did you and Kelly, your wife, Connor's mother, when did you first notice that he was something special on the ice? It was probably even before he actually got to the ice. You know, he started skating when he was to just before he turned three but before that um for his second birthday we had gotten him a pair of rollerblades and he put the rollerblades on in our house in the basement and just started to skate and i kind of thought that was a little bit different um and then it quickly became pretty clear once he started to play ice hockey you know a short time later that um that he was a little bit different than some of the other players you built a rink in your backyard what was his what was his response to that as a as a little guy well that's a great question he um he actually helped me to maintain the rink um we would be out there at night you know pouring the water onto to try and 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 you know take out the edges from and the bumps from you know that day's gate um and he would be out there for hours um you know i remember he would come home or so he would come in the house from skating to have dinner he'd leave his skates on at the at the kitchen table and then off he would go back outside and skate some more so he just he just couldn't get enough it was uh it was a really magical time actually you drove connor to his sessions his practices your wife drove your other son to what he was doing what was the discussion like between you and young connor well it really depended on the day um it and it depended on the time you know if we were coming back from a game for example the conversation would would for the duration of the drive would be fully about the game what happened in the game um and i was the coach i'm not sure if you knew that or not but i coached him for seven years so I had a, a you know a different perspective maybe than you know than some of the other parents would, um, so the the conversation would be entirely about the game you know what happened in the game you know opportunities missed um, um, just the the whole experience of playing the game uh, you know referees missed calls you know who were playing next it was just the conversation was always about hockey he was just so so totally focused on hockey that um, that dominated the discussion. 
you noticed his gift. When did others who were watching him play and watching him practice, when did they figure out that he had something special? Um, well, that's interesting. You know, minor hockey, you know, parents are often very competitive with each other. So, you know, commentary about other players is, you know, particularly if it's, you know, about a player who seems to be excelling, you know, that doesn't happen all the time. Um, but we had a really interesting experience when Curtis Joseph's son was on our team, um, uh, Connor's first year playing AAA hockey. Uh, it was it just happened to be the year of the NHL lockout as well. I think it was 2005, and Curtis was there. And Curtis was very um, upfront about his, you know, commentary. And he he actually told me that. Um, he really thought that Connor had a real gift, and uh, you know, up until then, you know, I kind of—I mean, I certainly, like everybody else, noticed that Connor was different. But he—he he put it in a, in another way. Um, you know, some of his comments would be, you know, he does things, meaning Connor does things that players in the NHL don't even think about doing. And so that was a real eye opener for me. So I'd have to say that was probably one of the first times when I realized that, you know, that that Connor was different and may have an opportunity to pursue the game um, professionally. Is it true that Connor said to Kelly, to his mom, at a a very young age, maybe even seven or eight, I'm going to be moving out at age 15 to enhance my hockey career? I don't think he may have put it that way, but is that true that he had the foresight to know that he was going to move on and at such a young age, Brian? Yes, absolutely it was. Uh, I remember the conversation, actually. He told Kelly he had he had it all planned out. He and I'm we never would talk about this. Um, once once this happened, we never spoke about it because it seemed you know just way too far fetched. And if you were to tell people, they would they would think you were crazed and you know called mm-hmm. a loony bin, I guess. But um, but he said to Kelly when he was seven or eight, I can't remember which, that he was going to be like Sidney Crosby and he was going to go to Shattuck. St. Mary's, which is a prep school in the United States when he was 14. He was going to get exceptional player status and be drafted into the OHL first overall when he was 15. And then he was going to be drafted into the NHL uh, first overall um, when that time came. And at the end of the day, um, he was going to win Stanley Cups and World Championships and that sort of thing. And it kind of seems, Brian, that that's exactly what happened. (laughs) And actually, I forgot one thing. He, he actually said he was going to play for Team Canada as well and win a hmm. gold medal for Team Canada. So how do so, you... Yes, all, how... all of it has come true, except for the last couple of pieces. Um, you know, there's still... The, the story still be written about the Stanley Cups and, you know, that sort of thing. But uh, the rest of it has come true. How did you deal with that? He was so young, and obviously much of that came true. He was determined, but... How do you then harness, if that's the right word, uh, contain, if that's the right word, nurture and support that kind of enthusiasm and commitment to the game at such a young age? Well, the one thing we tried not to do was to damper his goals, you know, and tell him that, you know, that, you know, that they were not achievable. In fact, we told him just the opposite. We told him that it's all achievable. And we wrapped it around the idea that, you know, hard work, um, will will give you an opportunity to reach your goals. It's not a certainty that you'll reach your goals, but it will give you an opportunity to reach your goals. And and 
so we 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 I, I think in some ways we kind of uh, stoked the, the the flames that he that he had without you know telling him you know you have to set your goals just a little bit lower because those are unrealistic. I never thought, and I shouldn't say I we never thought that that was the right thing to do. Um, you know, it's I think it's great that kids have goals and it's great that they have dreams and you know to give them the opportunity to reach those goals and dreams. Um, by providing the right environments and the right tools and, you know, whatever else we need to do. Um, we just felt like that was the right thing to do as parents. Were you ever criticized for the kind of support that you offered, Connor? You know, there are hockey parents and then there are hockey parents. And I, I believe that you were hockey parents, very, very supportive. But there are others who maybe through jealousy or just misunderstanding didn't know how your support manifested itself, that it was really Connor's desire to to practice hard and do it day and night? Um, well, that's interesting. So, yes, I, I, you know, I'm not naive enough to think that other people weren't, you know, critical or, you know, judgmental of, you know, some of our decision-making. You know, I'll give a couple examples. So one of them is that Connor played minor hockey. He played with the older kids, one year older than him his, uh, his entire life. He never actually played a game with kids his own age until I think he played in the OHL. Um, so I know that people were critical, um, you know, critical of that. And we really just, you know, we really just approached it from the view that there's no playbook for what we're doing. Um, you know, we have a, a, a child who seems to be excelling. Um, you know, there's no book that's written to say that these are the, you know, these are the steps you need to take to, you know, to get your, your child wherever they, it is that they wish to be. Um, so we really just followed, you know, gut instinct. And it's not like we were swimming upstream oftentimes. Um, but we just did what we thought was the right thing to do. And actually, Connor had a really interesting perspective on this. We were, he was being interviewed by the New York Times, I think, when he was 15. Yeah, it was his first year in the OHA. And the, 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 the reporter uh, or the columnist asked him a question about that about, you know, how, how was it when you were younger? Did you feel the pressure? And Connor actually responded to the fellow, and he, he was very direct about this, and he said, you know, I always heard the stories that, that people said that my dad made me, you know, do this stuff. My dad was pushing me by making me work in the driveway and do all these things. And Connor was very clear, and he said to the guy, he said, that was, that's completely not true. And he said he oftentimes felt bad that people would say those kind of things because he'd heard those things too. Um, he felt bad for me that people were thinking that way of him. And I actually took it from a different perspective, and I actually kind of felt like I don't think people gave Connor enough credit for his desire. And that really was, I could say all the things I wanted to say, but, you know, Connor was the one who pushed himself. We provided the opportunities, and he's the one who took advantage of those opportunities. So um, pretty interesting time for sure. For sure. The Globe and Mail, there was a headline, Family Ties. While his father helped develop Connor McDavid's hockey skills, it was his mother who nurtured his heart. What, what does that mean? Yeah. Kelly, um, I, I've heard that before. Kelly is the, you know, she's his mother, and she has the emotional um, part of, and I just have to say that I'm not emotional about my son as well, but um, she just has this, you know, the bond with both boys, and she's sort of trying to make sure that 
um, they're in a safe space, particularly when they're in the, and this never changes, I guess, but, but particularly when they're younger, they're in a safe space, you know, they're sheltered, they're protected, they're nurtured. And um, she was the one who made sure that, um, you know, that those criticisms never really, the criticisms that we heard from other people never really found their way you know, to the boys, at least not through us anyway. And um, she was often, she would get quite upset and, and uh, you know, when we heard things like that. So that was, again, interesting time. And, and like I said, there was no playbook for any of it. And we just kind of had to, you know, work our way through it and do what we thought was right. What was your best advice to him as he was growing up? Um, be humble, genuine, and sincere, and listen more than you talk. Hmm. That's really good advice. So we, we we would talk we would talk about that often. Actually, both boys we would have that conversation with with them often. And that's, those are those times when you're when you're in the car with your kids and you get out, you know, you're having conversation. And again, oftentimes with Connor, the conversation is about hockey. But you know, there were other times when it wouldn't be. And I would always tell him that he had this this I thought he had this gift and that he needed to, you know, nurture the gift, but always remember to be humble, sincere, and genuine, and to listen more than he talked. And that people would, you know, those are leadership qualities that people will follow. I watch him carefully, and and I notice that he, on top of being a spectacular hockey player, he's a generous hockey player. He sets up goal situations for many of his team members. He, at 24, would likely be considered a young man with a lot of distractions possible. So he is uh, captain of the Oilers. He's one of the best NHL players on the ice right now and maybe forever. He is a multimillionaire. He's not living close to you. How do you stay in touch with him and, and, and keep him the Connor that you know and love and, and that we all respect so much? Well, I don't know that it's, you know, it's it's not about keeping him the way he is because he he is who he is. You know the, you know somebody once said you know you, you learn everything you need you need to know to be successful in life by the time you're five. I think it was, but it, but at some age that's you know a lot younger than he is today, and you know those are lessons that he's learned a long time ago. You know I think um, our job as parents today are just to you know stay in touch, you know make sure we know that he's you know he's in a good place. Um, because there was a lot of pressure, you know, in, in doing what he does. Um, I have this other little expression I, I, I tell people sometimes that, um, you know, the struggles with Connor have always been more off-ice related than they were on-ice related. You know, the stuff on-ice, you know, it didn't come easy. He did a lot of work, but it, it seemed easy. But it was all the things off the ice that we were always, you know, struggled with more than anything else. And, you know, that probably is no different today. Um, but to answer your question, you know, we, you know, I text him, basically every day, if not every day, every other day, um, just to see how he is, you know, how things are going. And, you know, there's a lot of people don't realize there's ups and downs. And everybody thinks, you know, that, like you just said, you know, he's 24 years old. He's, you know, a multimillionaire. He's this on-ice, you know, player that, you know, is in, you know, sort of worldwide recognition. And But yet he's still just our son, right? So our job is just to stay in touch with him, make sure he's good. And that the you know things are in his life are stable. Hmm. Beautifully put, Connor McDavid's father Brian. Thank you so much for joining us in conversation. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. When we come back, music to our ears. This is in conversation with Ann Romer. 
Is there someone you want to learn more about? Drop us a line, info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer will be right back on 1059 The Region. Welcome back to In Conversation with Ann Romer on 1059 The Region. that beautiful music comes to us courtesy of 14-year-old Lincoln Haggard Ives. Yes, he is just 14 and is already being called a violin virtuoso, an incredible feat for one so young. Lincoln earned the chance to play Carnegie Hall in 2020, but the pandemic has put that on hold for now. Most recently, he won a Rising Star Award, which will give him the opportunity to play with the Toronto Symphony Orchestra when it is safe to do so. His mom, Maria, has been with Lincoln every step of the way, or maybe I should say every note of the way. She joins us now in conversation. Thank you, Maria. Hi, Anne. How are you? Well, I'm better for speaking with you, truly. And we, we're we such big fans of you and of Lincoln here at 105.9 The Region. So I want to talk to you about when you first noticed that he had some musical inclination. What did you see? What did you hear? Well, it was actually, I would say, when he was a young baby, um, maybe, you know, nine months old, Um you know, before he could walk or talk, he would always sort of bop around to the music. We would play all sorts of music for him when he was really young, and I decided to enroll him in um, uh, some uh, early childhood music classes, and he would always sort of bop his head to the beat and stuff. So we, we I think we knew <laughs> then that he had uh, some sort of interest in music. Did you play music to him when he was in the womb? Oh, yeah, we did, actually. Um, I made sure that uh, we used to read to him and also play music for him as well, all sorts of different types of music, uh, especially uh, classical music and classic pop music, too. So there could be some connection. You know, they, they can't quite determine, scientists, whether there is that, uh, that connection when children are read to uh, in the womb. But it seems that maybe there was some influence, especially when you talk about classical music. So why the violin, Maria? Well, the violin is a smaller instrument, and it's, it's a sizable instrument. Uh, he does play piano as well, but um, the violin, uh, I also just always loved the sound of the violin. I played the violin when I was in high school. I mean, never to his level, obviously, but... I've always uh, loved that instrument because uh, it really, you know, I love opera as well and violin mimics the human voice or, um, and um, yeah, so because it was a sizable instrument, we thought that we would start him off on a little violin and he just, he really picked it up and he, um, you know, just took off with it. It never sounded, it never sounded uh, awful at all. Like it was never, like, he never made my ears bleed when he practiced. <laughs> I wonder what it was about the violin for him that seemed like the right fit. And you're right. So often we chuckle when we hear anyone who picks up a violin for the first time and the sound can be just something that is so awful that you really do have to stick your fingers in your ear. Not the case with Lincoln. What do you think? How did that connection come about between young boy and violin? 
he he always had um, just a, uh, you know when we put him in his first uh, competition when he was I think four or five years old. Um, I remember the adjudicator looked at us and just said, "Your son has a gift." Hmm. And to me, like that just meant that, you know, we always sort of thought that, but to actually hear him play and, and um, with other kids his age, like he always sort of stood out. And, and to hear an adjudicator, um, you know, a seasoned adjudicator tell us that, it, it, uh, something just resonated with him and that instrument. What was practice like for him? And, and, and I'm amazed that he was in competition at such a young age. That is just so young. How did he embrace practice? Uh, practice was, uh, it's always a challenge, practicing, I think, um, uh, more so now that he's older and he's got uh, a lot of commitments uh, to school. Um, but uh, practicing, it's always been a bit of a struggle. <laughs> um, we don't really force him to practice. He actually doesn't practice as much as he should practice. At his level, he should be practicing. I've been told, like, he should be practicing an hour and a half to two hours a day. He really does not do that sometimes. You know, he doesn't practice every day, um, but um, it's a struggle. It's a challenge. Uh, he started off with the Suzuki method, though. So what the Suzuki method does, it, it um, enables um, the parents to engage themselves also with the instrument. So um, you, as a parent who's starting out young with your, you know, a, start, a young child starting out on the violin, you're also playing the violin with them, and that encourages them to practice. So you practice together, and you learn, you know, the twinkles and, uh, you know, all the little songs in book one. You learn all those together, and you also go to parent and child classes. So it really is a family um, sort of effort, and I think that encourages the kids as well to see, hey, look, mom and dad are doing this as well, and, and it really encourages them to practice. You know, there's a fine line between uh, being a supportive parent and a pushy parent. How do you remain on the side of supportive parent? Well, um, as I said, right now, you know, I'm not forcing him to practice. Like, if he's feeling like he can't practice or if he's feeling that he cannot uh, perform or cannot uh, engage in, in um, a competition or something. I sort of leave it up to him. I ask him, do you want to do this, yes or no? If he says no, then it's no. And if he says yes, then we, we go for it. Maria, what do you see in his face and, and in his demeanor when he is playing, practicing, and performing? What do you, as his proud mom, what do you see? Um, I see a true love for the instrument. He also throws himself into the music as well, and I see like the emotion coming from deep within himself, and he really does um, emote when he plays. Uh, you know, you can tell that he loves the music and that he's really feeling it, and um, I, I don't know, maybe he creates stories in his head as well that go along with the music to uh, to make it more convincing, like he, he is quite convincing, and he does it naturally. Like, there's no affectation there. Um, some kids, when you see them perform, you can tell that they've sort of been coached to perform in a particular way. But Lincoln isn't like that at all. Like, he, it's what you see is what you get, and what you see is actually what he's feeling, too. What do you feel when you watch him? 
Um, I get sometimes I get kind of emotional <laughs> when I watch him play because it is just so, you know, like sometimes I say, look what you can do, you know, you can, you know, when he plays um, these great works by, um, you know, these composers, you know, Schubert or Mozart or Bach, it really is, um, trans, you know, like there's this sort of transcendence there that uh, I, I, I say to him, you know, like, uh this isn't just about you. This is way bigger than you are. Like you are actually passing along this music down to other generations. Like the music is living through you and passing through you. And I sort of feel that, that connection with, with like something that is much bigger than just like Lincoln playing on the stage. Does he, that make sense? Yeah, it does. It sure does to me. I'm an adult. Does it make sense to him? Um, I don't know. I've said that to him before, and um, I don't know if he quite gets what I'm saying. Like, I think he understands it from sort of an academic point of view, but I don't think he really gets sort of the metaphysical aspect of it. Carnegie Hall. So exciting when the news broke that he was invited to, thanks to you, because you entered him into this competition, (laughs) to perform at Carnegie Hall. The pandemic has put that on hold. Let's yeah. talk about the uh, the Rising Star Award. He is with the recipient of a Rising Star Award. One of his dreams was to play with the Toronto Symphony Orchestra. Sounds yeah. like that dream is about to come true. Yeah, yeah, that's another competition. Um, we heard about it through um, his orchestra, actually, because he's doing orchestra online as well. And um, the administrator emailed um, all the students and said, you know, there's this uh, play along with Jonathan Crow competition coming up and um, you can play along with them virtually and then you record it and then you upload it and you have the opportunity to actually win, uh, you know, to perform with him like that's the top award. And so um, it's interesting because it's um, the Bach double concerto, and Lincoln was used to playing uh, the second violin part. Um, I don't think he's really ever played the first violin part, but he learned it. Uh, that's the more challenging part, as the first violin part. And he learned it uh, along with his teacher, and he helped him with it. And he was practicing it, you know, um, daily. Um, and he was very motivated by that. You know, the pandemic's been pretty tough um, in terms of motivation. And I, we're just so thankful that this opportunity came up because it really did motivate him. Hmm. And uh, he ended up um, winning uh, a Rising Star Award and is going to be performing with Jonathan Crow once it's safe to do so. So that was like quite a thing. <laughs> Maria, do you encourage him to be a regular young guy as well? Absolutely. So, I mean, he's got other hobbies as well. Like he loves to read, he loves to play video games, and he hangs out with his friends. And lately, you know, hanging out on friends on Discord just because uh, it's not really safe to meet in person. Um, But we go to friends' cottages and uh, we travel and we do all sorts of things. So it's not just about the violin. What do you see in his future? Well, I see whatever he wants to do in his future. <laughs> I'm, I'm not pushing him to uh, do to pursue any particular career. I'll support him whatever he chooses to do. 
Um, he does talk about music uh, in his future as being a potential career, um, but he also talks about you know potentially being an engineer as well. So it's up to him, really. Um, who knows where the future will uh, lead Lincoln? Um, I, I just know that I'm going to be here to support him in whatever decisions that he makes. What makes you most proud of him? Uh, the uh, way that he's overcome many challenges um, in his life, and uh, he always just perseveres, and he he just gets on with it, and he, you know, whatever challenges uh, he's faced with, he will just keep pushing until he overcomes them. Fourteen-year-old Lincoln Haggard Ives is on the the cusp of superstardom in the world of violins and classical music. Mother Maria has joined us in conversation just now, and I can't thank you enough for being such a great mom to such an amazing talent. Thank you so much, Anne. Uh, Lincoln Haggard Ives, a violin phenom, and Connor McDavid, an NHL superstar, each both guided, loved, and supported brilliantly by their proud parents. I'm Ann Romer. Bye for now. Follow In Conversation with Ann Romer on Twitter at 1059 The Region. This is 1059 The Region.